Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to a panel composed of Dr. Michael Welker, Chair of the Department of Accounting, Business Administration, and Economics at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Joseph Zorick, Director of the MBA Program at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Doug Lowry, Retired Professor of Business at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Michael Cirilla, Associate Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Kevin Miller, Assistant Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and Father Dan Petit, Associate Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, discussing the topic, The Free Enterprise System, The Most Effective System to Eradicate Poverty. This panel is sponsored by the Department of Accounting, Business Administration, and Economics at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Dr. Thomas Kelly is the moderator of this discussion. The panelists present in this order, Dr. Joseph Zorick, Dr. Michael Cirilla, Dr. Doug Lowry, Dr. Kevin Miller, Dr. Michael Welker, Father Dan Petit. Welcome to our panel discussion on the free enterprise system and its attempts both historically and contemporarily to eradicate poverty. This evening's panel discussion is being sponsored by Enactus, formerly known as Students in Free Enterprise, or SIFE, as we call it, and the Department of Accounting, Business Administration, and Economics. I am Dr. Thomas Kelly, Associate Professor of Accounting and Business, and the Faculty Advisor of Enactus, and I will be tonight's moderator for our discussion. We are delighted to have with us tonight six very distinguished academicians to discuss the free enterprise system as a vehicle to eradicate poverty. They are Professor Joseph Zorick of the Business Department, Dr. Michael Cirilla of the Theology Department, Dr. Doug Lowry, retired member of the Department of Accounting and Business and Economics, Dr. Kevin Miller of the Theology Department, Dr. Michael Welker of the Business Department, and Father Dan Petit of the Theology Department. We are very grateful for all of you to be here tonight. Tonight our format will be as follows. I will be posing one question to our panel to get things started off, and they will have each about five minutes to convey their thoughts initially to my question. We will then open up our discussion to the audience so that they can participate as well. I will serve a little bit like a referee this evening in order to keep the discussion flowing. In 1978, a group called SIFE was formed here at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Since that time, it has gone from the leadership of Professor Joseph Zorick to yours truly. <laughs> also during that time, the organization has amassed numerous trophies when competing against other institutions in regards to who best helps the communities that they live in. This organization consists of students who love Christ and are committed to the Pope and the Magisterium of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. They also strongly promote the free enterprise system as the economic system that enables citizens to live their dreams and to succeed. They believe what Adam Smith advocated in 1776 in his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, when he said that those countries that rely mainly on the free enterprise system of private property rights and the rule of law prosper, while those that do not are consigned to a life of grinding poverty. We see this, for example, in China, who began privatizing state-owned markets in the 1990s. And since that time, their economy has grown at an astonishing rate of 10% per year, thus improving the economic lives of their citizens. They also recognize that under a free enterprise system, charity and giving to the poor can greatly increase. According to the World Bank, global poverty was cut in half between 1990 and 2010, despite a major global recession. This, they believe, occurred when developing nations began embracing more market-based systems. Additionally, in its second annual study of 153 countries for the year 2011, the Charity Aid Foundation ranked the United States as the most generous country in the world, donating to the impoverished approximately $212 billion. More importantly, the business, the business students from this university are sent out into the world with an appreciation of the free enterprise system and a desire to take Christ into the marketplace. 
They embraced the reality that Pope John Paul II said in 1991 in his encyclical and Centissimus Annus that it would appear that on the level of individual nations and of international relations, the free market is the most efficient instrument for utilizing resources and effectively responding to needs. They recognized that the Holy Father also stated that the free enterprise system could not satisfy spiritual needs and that he warned against danger, the danger of becoming obsessed with materialism. They recognized that no system is perfect, that there is a role for government in maintaining the rule of law in markets. But they also recognize that no system in the past 200 years has done more for the economic needs of humanity, as John Paul II stated, than the free enterprise system. However, in November 2013, in his papal exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis raised concerns about the free enterprise system by stating, among other comments, today everything comes under the laws of competition and the survival of the fittest, where the powerful feed upon the powerless. As a consequence, masses of people find themselves excluded and marginalized without work, without possibilities, without any means of escape. Various comments and interpretation of Pope Francis's exhortation have permeated and have caused some confusion to many in regards to the obvious benefits of the free enterprise system and its role in Catholic social teaching. In his exhortation, Pope Francis called business a noble profession. Reverend Robert Sirico, president of the Acton Institute, described when commenting on the exhortation, the free enterprise system is a system that enables people to use their God-given creativity to unleash this noble profession of business to not be merely for ourselves, but for the poorest of the poor. My question for the panel this evening is what advice would you give to our students here at Franciscan as they try to blend the obvious and overwhelming evidence of the success of the free enterprise system with Pope John Paul's II encyclical and the re recent exhortation of Pope Francis. We begin with Professor Joseph Zorg. Did you want to come up here? Okay. Did you want a mic? Like most economists who have studied the subject, I was taken aback a bit by the Holy Father's statement in his first apostolic <coughs> exhortation that there is no evidence to support economic theories, quote, which assume that economic growth encouraged by a free market will inevitably succeed in bringing about greater justice and inclusiveness in the world. The statement seems to fly into the face of the empirical evidence. The global poverty rate is declining by 70 million people per year, driven by globalization and the liberalization of markets around the world. One can see this progress on the internet at gapminder.org. But this reduction is not achieved evenly. Today, there are about 820 million people in the world living on less than $1.25 a day. If you go back in history, 300, 400, 500 years ago, everyone in the world was poor. But in the year 1733, something remarkable happened. An Englishman, by the name of John Kay, received a patent for his flying shuttle, an invention that allowed one man to weave as much cotton as it took 10 men to do with the previous technology. This was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It was fully underway in England by 1800 and spread to the United States by 1850. Beginning with this period and continuing today, the world has experienced what is known as the Great Divergence. Some countries, like the United States, took off like a rocket, while others grew more slowly or not at all. If we go back to the year 1900, the Pope's native country of Argentina had a per capita gross domestic product that was 75% of that of the United States. Today, the United States per capita GDP is nearly three times that of Argentina. 
Also, in 1900, Argentina had a per capita GDP that was higher than both South Korea and Japan. Today, both of those countries have per capita GDPs that are higher than Argentina's. What has caused the US, Japan, and South Korea to prosper and Argentina to falter? The answer lies in institutions. Countries that create the right institutions create wealth, while those without those institutions remain poor. What are those institutions? I have identified seven of them. The first one is honest government, lack of corruption. Corruption destroys investment and creates poverty. The second one, and probably the, the, the most important, is private property rights. Economist Hernando de Soto has shown that in the Philippines, one has to go through 168 steps through the bureaucracy of the country and 13 to 25 years to get the deed to a plot of land. In Egypt, it takes 77 steps and 6 to 14 years. In Peru, it takes 728 steps through 17 government agencies. In Haiti, it takes 11 years to secure private property. In Canada, on the other hand, you can start a business by going to two through two bureaucratic procedures and paying a fee of $280. But in Bolivia, it takes 82 business days to go through 20 procedures, and it costs $2,700. These costly business startup costs push the poor into the informal economy where they remain poor. The third point is small government, a government that gets out of the way of entrepreneurs creating jobs for people in the country. Number four is sound money, low inflation. Uh, hyperinflation discourages investment. Number five is the rule of law as opposed to the rule of men. Dictators destroy wealth. Number six is international trade. The nation has to open its borders to trade with other countries. Number seven is regulations that minimize uh, uh, the trouble it takes to start a business and maximize the formations of businesses and the free exchange between individuals. Countries that support these institutional arrangements will be wealthy and will be able to improve the economic well-being of all of its people, including the poor. Check out the Index of Economic Freedom on the internet and you can see the results. In short, it is not capitalism and globalism that, that harms the poor of the world, but the misguided domestic policies of third world countries. I would suggest two books uh, on these subjects. Uh, one is The Mystery of Capital by Hernando de Soto, and the second is Why Nations Fail by uh, Darren Asimoglu uh, and James Robinson. Thank you. I'm going to stay here. There's a mic. There's a, just for the record, guys, there's a microphone if you want to use one at your behest. So the question that you posed, uh, Dr. Kelly, is this. How, what advice would we give to students to square their solid experience in the benefits and good of the free enterprise system and JP2's teaching and Chantasimus Honus supporting the free market as a very helpful system? in juxtaposition to Francis's recent teaching in the Evangelii Gaudium, his post-synodal apostolic exhortation, uh, the topic of which is on evangelization, and in particular, Articles 202 and following, where he makes comments that uh, seem to challenge or reject free market or free enterprise systems and uses language that sounds <clears throat> somewhat socialistic. So the first thing I'd say is uh, to, to my esteemed economics colleagues is uh, welcome to our world in theology where we have to, it's a very, well, it's a very difficult challenge to uh, generate principles and apply principles to interpret magisterial documents. So I'm going to speak just a little bit about that, try to keep within the five-minute time limit. The, uh, comp, so what, how do you, JP2's Chintasimus Annas was an encyclical, uh, Evangelii Gaudium is a post-apostolic synodal exhortation. They're magisterial documents. How are we to receive them? It's a difficult challenge, but here are the basic <coughs> principles. 
uh, and it's rooted in the role of the magisterium as the teaching office founded by Christ. The competency and the authority of the magisterium that Christ gives it is limited strictly to teaching, explaining, and defending divinely revealed truth as found in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. As such, the magisterium uh, speaks with authority uh, on the following matters. Faith and morals. Second, all matters that are necessarily and intrinsically related to revealed truth or on faith and morals. And third, the magisterium has authority in matters of church discipline and governance, which is changeable and adaptable to different times and places, such as rules for the liturgy, for fasting, marriage laws, and the like. Not the morality of marriage, but certain applications of marriage laws. The magisterium, in addition to this, also in official documents, uh, makes prudential teachings, gives prudential teachings. Prudential teachings are, in general, practical applications of behavior in particular situations. Uh, so they're positions that are open to legitimate debate. You say that's a prudential judgment, that means you could choose otherwise, and either way might be morally acceptable, but it's a matter of prudence. Okay. In uh, a magisterial document from 1990 entitled on the, ecclesial, uh, on the Instruction of the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian in Article 24, so this is magisterial teaching, we read this. In addition, I'm quoting, in addition to solid principles, and the solid principles they're talking about are the binding teaching on faith and morals, okay, and matters that are necessarily and intrinsically related to faith and morals. Returning to the quote, in addition to solid principles, certain contingent and conjectural elements are taught. It often becomes possible only with the passage of time to distinguish between what is necessary and binding and what is contingent, uh, end of quote. Now there's a lot here, but in sum, the upshot is this. Even within the same magisterial document, some magisterial teachings express what they call solid principles. Those are unchanging, universal, and general uh, revealed truth on faith and morals. And in the same document sometimes, other teachings of the magisterium, other statements, express only contingent and conjectural elements. In other words, changeable, particular, and individual, what is commonly called prudential judgments. Magisterial teaching on unchanging truths of faith and morals are to be received by the faithful as binding. Prudential teachings are to be received with respect and reverence, but they're not binding. In general, our attitude, the church teaches, should be always one that's ready to accept and obey all of her teachings, prudential or not. <coughs> if we see a problem with a prudential teaching, we should first see if there's an interpretation of it that can make sense to us. If not, the church herself, in the same document I cited, directs us to make our concerns known to the church or even other members of the faithful. Code of Canon Law, Canon 212, that's the language it uses. But this is often done in a better way, but not always, by posing a question which expresses humility and an openness to being corrected in your own assessment rather than just saying, this teaching is totally wrong, but asking, like Father Sirico, whom you mentioned, Tom, did in his response to Evangelii Gaudium, when the Pope writes, unfettered uh, free market is a, is, a, is a real problem, and Father Sirico asked the question, uh, where, where is that happening right now, a totally unfettered free market? That's a good, humble you know, response, I think. So wrapping up and tying it into Francis, and I can only do this to some degree because now I'm beyond my competence, I'm not an economist. Uh, much of what Francis says in Evangelii Gaudium in that section on politics and the economy, in Articles 202 and following, use language that, as I said, sounds either liberal or even to some socialist in its apparent condemnation, apparent condemnation of free market capitalism. I have four points very briefly. First, the Second Vatican Council in the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Article 42, T2, 
teaches this, quote, in virtue of her mission and nature, the church is bound to no particular form of human culture, nor to any political, economic, or social system, end of quote. Secondly, it's important in interpreting magisterial documents such as this one by Pope Francis that we not read more into the document than it actually says. This is the whole problem with a spirit of Vatican II issue, where people say, well, Vatican II says this, but the spirit really is something different. You have to be careful to stick right closely to the text. Third, very importantly, authentic magisterial teaching that's binding cannot contradict prior teaching. And in this regard, uh, we have several popes, among them Pope Pius XI in his encyclical Quadragesimo uh, uh, Anno, and John Paul II in his encyclical Centesimus Annus, clearly condemning socialism as intrinsically immoral because it's inhuman, inhumane. Finally, um, it seems to me, just throw it out, as I've read and reread and reread this section, that much of what Pope Francis is saying is prudential. And thus, it's not strictly binding, but you can't blow it off either. We have to receive it with respect and you know, ask questions and see what we can make of it. And that's part of what we're doing here. Dr. Hall. Free enterprise is not a biblical concept, but Freedom is. Let's focus for a little bit on freedom. Freedom is an essential cornerstone of the way God deals with us. What if there's no freedom? Well, there's no responsibility. And I suggest there's no love, because love is grounded in freedom. Love is, my definition, persistence in a free choice to pour out self for the benefit of another. Well, what is the alternative uh, to freedom if we're saying something else is better? Uh, the only alternative that comes to mind is coercion by some select elite. First, you have to ask, what is the basis of that elite's uh, special superiority? And looking at these elites around the world, and here too, uh, do they govern well? Big question over that. Uh, in our own civil service, we have good people who are caught up in a malevolent culture of power so that they're unable to get things done. Civil service as well as Congress is, deals with this illusion that power is what matters. Uh, power, if you reflect on it at all, it is very temporary. It is an illusion. There's a lot of confusion over freedom. Pick up a Wall Street Journal, you can see examples of it every day. Uh, some interpret freedom as license. Some interpret it as, oh, it's all about me. Or Freedom flows from such and such ideology. You will go along with this and you will have true freedom. Go along with the uh, uh, Karl Marx and after the withering away of the uh, state, you know, things are going to be absolutely fantastic. But there happens to be a little coercion in the meantime if you happen to notice that. Okay, the biblical understanding of freedom. Dare I speak among these theologians? <laughs> Freedom flows from God-given human dignity. Freedom is an instrument of mutual service and hence unity. Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Jump from there to verse 13. Christ has set us free. You are called to freedom, brothers, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The purpose of freedom is service. Now, business at its best, marketing at its best, right, Jeff? <coughs> is a passionate...
commitment to the dignity of those we serve. Service, I put it out as the bottom line. Sure, they'll say profit's the bottom line. Profit, like oxygen, is absolutely essential. You can't keep your word if you don't make profit. But excellence in service is the source of our feeling of accomplishment in a life in business. Free enterprise is conditioned by the culture in which it is exercised. Adam Smith pointed out it was uh, written in 1776. Original sin was certainly around in 1776, but social norms were very different from what they are today. And the problem today, I would put in these two terms, that there is too little right thinking about God in the business place. People are too often treated as objects. Contrast this to Carol Vaitiwa's uh, love and responsibility, where each is subject. Completely different set of attitudes. I used love and responsibility as one of my textbooks in marketing, just for the record. Okay, Franciscan University, it offers philosophy, which has to do with disciplined, orderly thinking. Theology <clears throat> comes along and emphasizes right thinking about God. I was pointing out to Father Dan, I've been listening to his help for us in having right thinking about God for 25 years. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that. And it's part of this university, and it is precious. But the outworking of the right thinking and the right thinking about God is our service to others. Franciscan University is ex corde ecclesia at its best. We've got philosophy, we've got theology, but we have the professions, and we say that they are part of this being one university. Okay. Our graduates, how much time do I have, sir? Keep going. It comes to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always very intimidated, sir. <laughs> Our graduates here are equipped to offset the moral dyslexia that you see every day in the Wall Street Journal. There's so much nonsense going out there, going on out in this world. Franciscan University can produce the graduates who are going to make a difference by having the theology, philosophy, and the practical grounding so that you can get out there and serve. I would point out that Francis is calling us to get out there with joyful evangelism. There's not that many uh, gradu graduates in theology and philosophy. What are 10,000, 20,000 a year? Uh, in business, there's, uh, I wrote it down here somewhere, 365,093 business undergraduate degrees in 2011. Okay. Uh, the action's out there, guys. And that's where Franciscan University graduates are most especially needed. Don't wall yourself up behind, you know, a mighty fortress is our church. No, get out there. And here is your opportunity at Franciscan to get a full perspective so that when you practice free enterprise, you understand what freedom really is. Pope Francis, let me just dwell briefly there. When I first heard about this session, I was, thought it was going to be a, an attempt to beat up on the Vicar of Christ, and that disturbed me immensely. Francis is God's gift to us at this point in time. What do we do? We ask ourselves, what is God doing, giving us this gift? There's something very profound going on here. God is trying to get our attention. God may be trying to undercut what John Paul called a culture of death by calling us to a culture of service. Evangelii Gaudium. Some people fear that the uh, media are gaming the Pope. I think it's the other way around. The Pope is gaming the media. He's, this is an old Jesuit. He's clever. <laughs> if you look at his Evangelii Gaudium, 
His wording is so precise. You think he's knocking down trickle-down uh, trickle economics? Look at it more carefully. What exactly is he saying? He's put up a straw man there, and he's got a conversation going <coughs> which needed to uh, be advanced. Word frequencies. Uh, I'll just finish with this. Word frequencies in Evangelii Gaudium. Variations on the market, nine times. The words liberate or liberty, 16 times. Free, 41 times. Service, 46 times. This man is a servant who is calling us to be servants in this world. And free enterprise, it's got its weaknesses. It's got things that all of us can poke our fingers at. You know, here's things that are wrong. If we can get our culture right, we be used as agents to transform the culture then we will have free enterprise as it really should be. You are part of the solution. Thank you. Yeah. I just want to say for the record, no one here would ever dream of beating up the Pope, okay? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Miller. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, we did not coordinate in advance uh, our remarks, and as it turns out, uh, Professor Lowry has said uh, much of what I want to say also. Uh, that includes your assessment of how Jesuits operate. I had, uh, I, I had more than a decade of Jesuit education from high school all the way through graduate school, and uh, I have a sense of how Jesuits operate, and I think that Francis is in many ways a typical Jesuit in the way in which he speaks and so on. Uh, but uh, more importantly for our purposes, I very much agree with what Professor Lowry is saying about the relationship between freedom and service. My own thoughts are along very similar lines. I want to express them a little bit differently, though. What I'd like to do is suggest uh, that there are two important themes that run through Catholic social teaching regarding socioeconomic matters. Uh, for more than a century now, going back to Pope Leo XIII's seminal encyclical Rerum Novarum uh, in 1891, uh, in which he was responding to some of the effects that the Industrial Revolution had had. Uh, there are more than two themes, I should say, to be clear, running through Catholic socioeconomic teaching from 1891 to the present, but there, there are two that I'd like to single out as important. First of all, I think the Church has consistently taught that a system that does not include respect for things like property rights, uh, freedom of economic initiative, and so on, is not going to be a system that respects human dignity. We are by nature free, and as part of our freedom, we're capable of making things our own through labor. We're capable of choosing how we're going to labor what kind of work we're going to do. Uh, the work in which we do is a kind of extension of ourselves and of our freedom. And the things that we create through our work are further extensions of ourselves. And uh, if we don't respect property rights, if we don't have a system in which property rights are made secure and so on, uh, then we don't have a system that respects human dignity. And similarly, if we don't have a system that allows freedom of economic initiative, free freedom in, in the area of economic activity, then again, we don't have a system that respects human dignity. It seems to me that popes from Leo XIII to Pius XI to John XXIII to Paul VI to John Paul II, Benedict XVI to Pope Francis now, uh, have recognized that. In the case of Pope Francis, there is again the mention in uh, Evangelii Gaudium that was referred to earlier of the nobility of the vocation uh, to be a business person, the nobility of uh, work in the area of business. And I think that that is consistent with the church's teaching that having economic freedom, using one's economic freedom is a good thing and, a, and something that needs to be respected. Uh, in fact, it seems to me that the church's rejection of socialism has at least as much to do with the church's insistence on the need to respect human dignity by respecting human freedom uh, as it does on the observation that free economic systems, free market systems are going to be better at meeting people's material needs than uh, 
systems are that involve more of a planned economy. Okay? At the same time, and here we see the connection with what Professor Lowry was pointing out in the letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, uh, the church has also consistently taught from rerum novarum onwards that as in all areas of life, so also in the area of economic life and activity, freedom has to be used rightly. Freedom is always the freedom to do good, to, to love God, and also to love one's neighbor as part of one's love for God. And it seems to me that when Pope Francis expresses some concerns about the ways in which economic freedom is sometimes used in our world, uh, he is picking up on that strand of Catholic teaching about economic activity, that insistence that economic activity always has to be entered into in a way that prioritizes service to others. Uh, it seems to me that Pope Francis is picking up on that strand uh, of Catholic teaching and reaffirming it as well, uh, as previous popes have done as well. Uh, similarly, in Centesimus Anus, you certainly see some insistence on the importance of the free market and on the good that can be done by the free market. Uh, pope John Paul also insists in Centesimus Anus that freedom always has to be used in a responsible way, in a way that's above all loving, in a way that above all expresses love of God and love of neighbor. Uh, it seems to me that if one reads Pope Francis's remarks in Evangelii Gaudium uh, in this way, in the context of the century plus history of modern Catholic socioeconomic teaching, which includes both of those emphases, both an emphasis on the importance of respect for freedom and an emphasis on the need to use freedom for loving service to God and neighbor, then his remarks, I think, can be understood properly, and it seems to me that when one reads them in that context, when one reads them uh, using what Pope Benedict referred to, he was talking about how interpret Second Vatican Council, a uh, hermeneutic of continuity, a hermeneutic that sees the continuity between what the church has taught in the past and what Pope Francis is saying now, it seems to me that there's, there's nothing terribly surprising about what he's saying. I think perhaps uh, the way in which he phrases some of what he says is um, different from the ways in which previous popes have phrased things. Uh, typically, popes don't always phrase things in the same way. Uh, there are different emphases, there are different ways of speaking, having to do with background, personality, all, all those kinds of things. Uh, but it seems to me that the, the basic substance of what Pope Francis is saying is not new. Uh, it seems to me that what he's doing is, is reaffirming a couple of things that have long been there in Catholic social teaching. Uh, and to respond directly to Professor Kelly's question as to what advice I would give to those who are going out into the business world, I think my basic advice would be, uh, be familiar with the totality of Catholic social teaching, uh, especially Catholic teaching regarding uh, economic matters, business activity, and so on. Uh, see the themes that are there consistently in Catholic social teaching throughout its modern history, and then make the kinds of prudential judgments that need to be made, that you're in a position to make given your business and economic expertise, uh, regarding how to translate those principles into practical application in our nation and in our world. Michael Thanks, Tom. Uh, what was the question again? Repeat <laughs> 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 it. <laughs> I think they need to hear it one more time, too. We were saying, how is it that, what advice would you give to our students here, a lot of our business students here this evening, uh, how are they to blend the uh, incredible success rate, or record, if you will, of the free enterprise system? along with the encyclical of Pope John Paul II and the exhortation by Pope Francis. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, as I ponder that, the first thing that comes to my mind is something that we could learn from, actually, from another pope. Others have been mentioned, right, uh, here. But I want to draw our attention to the document uh, Mater et Magistra by Blessed John the Twenty-Third, And in that, uh, there's a, uh, a methodology that uh, 
Blessed John presents to us. And it's a cycle that the layperson relies upon to examine uh, human life, shall we say, uh, our attempt to live in this world and to make it better so that human beings flourish. And it's this methodology involving... He, he, uh, in fact, uh, Pope Francis uh, refers to this kind of segueing through the Vatican document because the Vatican's, Vatican II kind of picks up on John 23rd's idea. And that is what you do is you read the signs of the times. You look at what's happening around you. You form uh, judgments about what is going on uh, using formed conscience. Uh, you know, deploy the principles uh, that we've learned from uh, our, our Holy Mother who is teaching us, Mater Magister Mother and Teacher. And then, based upon that, that work that we're doing, then we're called to act. We act in a certain way to uh, uh, attempt to try to fix what we think might be a little off, a little you know, skewed, or a little bit um, out of whack. And, and that's not going to stop, right? You, you try something, and you're going to wind up discovering, ah, oh, it didn't work quite well. And so you kind of go back again, and you look, and you see what's going on. You redeploy your judgments. Now, um, Professor Zorick and Dr. Lowry and I in the mix, let's put us into a realm we'll call social scientists. And part of what we're going to do in that cycle is we're going to try to contribute um, uh, me uh, methods of thinking, methods of making decisions, um, good data, and so on. So we heard, uh, for instance, uh, Professor Zorick kind of lay out some, some great stuff here on um, uh, sort of the, the big picture. I'm going to try to flesh that out with a little more detail for you guys. And I just want you to try to, uh, to try to take this in. It's a bunch of data, a bunch of facts about what's been going on in our world in the last um, 500 years, roughly, right? Well, 1733 to now is more like 300. But I like to push it back even more because prior to that inventive John Kay, you know, with the little flying shuttle, and by the way, that flying shuttle threw nine guys out of business, Right? Because now one person can, can do the work of ten. And uh, his uh, home was burned down. His life was threatened. He was driven you know, out of the country. He, he, he was very creative, but he was a job destroyer, you know. And, um, uh, yet, all of those people did find jobs eventually, right? Now, basic facts and the historical evidence, right? Let's just look at poverty reduction in general, okay? Um, in 1960, since 1965, the average person on planet Earth has seen their income double. Okay, so that's the average. And actually, even though that's happening on average, what's int more, really interesting to look at is there's different rates of increase in income if you kind of look at different segments. Okay? So um, in the world's population, the poorest fifth of the world's population since 1965 had a 300% increase in their income. Okay? Um, uh, and so they're, they're the ones, actually, their income's rising the fastest of everybody. Um, Africa has actually seen an 80% increase in their income. Latin America, 60% increase in their income. The Western industrialized nations only saw a 40% increase in their income. Economists call this catching up, right? There are people who have been left behind, but they're rapidly catching up to us. Um, coupled with that, uh, a broad way to stay, say it is poverty rates on planet Earth have fallen faster in the last 50 years than they have in the previous 500 years, right? And it's picking up speed. Average life expectancy in our world. In the year 1900, the average person on planet Earth had a life expectancy of 30 years, okay? Um, right now, it's a little bit over 65 years. So across about 100 years, we've doubled life expectancies. Again, it's, it's mixed. Some, some people live longer in these industrialized nations. Others are going to live sh uh, shorter lives uh, in poor nations. Um, nutrition is on the rise. The uh, measures of, say, malnutrition or what we call the undernourished uh, population on, uh, on Earth. In 1970, undernourished was about 37% of all people, um, so more than a third, right? Getting close to four of every ten people on Earth uh, that we would have classified as in need of proper nutrition, which is roughly 1,200 calories of food per day. Um, Right now, the nutrition, the undernourished rate in the world is around 12%, and it's falling. Um, it's been falling pretty rapidly since the year 2000. Um, illiteracy is all, also uh, diminishing. Uh, in 1925, the UN estimated, um, in a research study done in 2010, the UN estimated that in um, 1925, 
about 75% of adults could not read or write. Okay? And, and right now, that, <clears throat> that liter illiteracy rate is, has declined quite rapidly. Um, it's been cut to about 10% okay, across all ages, um, despite some real big headaches that still exist. For instance, in the third world, the absenteeism rate in, in uh, uh, basic schooling is about 50%. All right? um, and that refers not only to students that don't show up, but teachers who don't show up to the actual classroom to teach. So we have big supply and demand problems when it comes to actual schools that are in place. Um, also, the world is democratizing. In the year 1900, um, not one country on, on our planet had universal suffrage among adults. Um, uh, not a single country allowed all adults to vote uh, in, in uh, democratic elections. Um, uh, by the year 2000, that, that had changed. Um, instead of zero countries with you know, universal voting rights, 121 countries on our planet now have universal voting rights. Um, in, in basic education, just as a side note, since I, I, I skipped around a little bit, but in basic education um, right now, what's fascinating, um, the highest rate of female basic education right now uh, on, the, on the earth, it's 46% across the whole world. And that's, that's um, uh, a radically different number than, say, about 100 years ago when it was under 1% of women. Um, in non-Western economies. So um, all of that's happening, plus we can look at income distributions. Um, it turns out that even in 1973, if you looked at an income distribution for the whole world, you would say that it looked like a two-humped camel, okay? Uh, that <clears throat> you had sort of in the middle, not a lot of people with sort of middle income around 10,000 per year, a huge group with, with low levels of income and a big group with large levels of income. And now it turns out that that whole shape of that distribution has radically changed. Now it's a one-humped camel, <laughs> and it's a little bit further to the right with a little higher levels of income. And that indicates uh, that the, uh, 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 people are, are slowly moving into like, more like a middle class uh, around um, Earth. Um, but that's you know, lots of good news, right? There's also some very tragic um, debacles. Uh, 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 um, you know, AIDS still claims about 3 million persons per year. And uh, in the whole, uh, since roughly 1990, the AIDS epidemic has actually created 13 million orphans. Um, on top of that, about 20 million people are displaced and live uh, away from their native homes. Uh, they're fugitives of war and of oppression um, and of natural disasters. Um, one big issue um, about 900 million people cannot access clean drinking water uh, on Earth right now. And that, that is actually pretty easy to handle. Um, I just heard a great story on NPR. Uh, a guy in Israel has created a, a little gadget that's a straw. And the straw has this, uh, it's like it got a chlorine bleach um, injector attached to it. And you can basically uh, uh, slurp a little bit of water through this straw, and the chlorine bleach begins to clean it while you're, while you're drinking the water through the straw. Um, very important to get clean water. Right now, in infant mortality, one of every six uh, children who die, die because of diarrhea. It's because they've, they've uh, basically gotten some bug in their body, right? And so they need clean water. Um, <clears throat> and Pope Francis is very concerned about these, uh, I think, these... Uh, Debacles, right? We see him mentioning, for instance, uh, saying no to exclusion. Um, now, all, all of that news, though, right? Why did that? All, why did that happen? Why did the great divergence happen and all of the, you know, uh, economic progress in our world? Um, was it luck? Uh, no, I don't think so. And, and was it a miracle? Possibly. Um, but what we do know, uh, economists studying this, we, we know that it takes immense manpower and brain power to lift people out of poverty. <clears throat> if you cite, for instance, uh, the, the, the key uh, data that we've got so far uh, on what matters to, to help get people out of poverty, um, we note, uh, and I'll just repeat a little bit of what Professor Zorick said with some different words, um, that w w where free markets get constrained, we see poverty. Um, and now what are the constraints, sort of the barriers, right? Um, it turns out um, lack of property rights, right? So let's be really clear. It turns out uh, 
in that book, Mystery of Capital by um, De Soto, um, he discovers that the poorest of the poor, um, they actually have property, okay? But what they lack is property rights. Uh, so they can't leverage their property. A poor person typically, uh, in, let's say in India, who wants to borrow uh, some money to, uh, let's say, acquire some goods that they want to sell, maybe they get the equivalent uh, cash amount of $5, um, it turns out that they face a daily interest rate in Calcutta that runs around 5.6%. Okay? Now, <clears throat> if you failed to pay that back all right, um, uh, for one year, that would turn into a $1.7 million debt. <clears throat> and if you, if you failed for a, a, a two-year you know, um, time to, to pay that back, it's nearly $97 million. See, so um, the poor, uh, you're right, they, they, they don't have a kind of normally operating, normally functioning uh, financial system around them, except for microcredit. Microcredit has stepped in to try to help, uh, and we're, we're learning a lot of lessons with microcredit. It turns out it is incredibly difficult to loan money to the poor, even when you just want to give it to them uh, at, at very, very low interest rates. At times, they won't take it. They'll actually rather depend on um, these more informal loan shark types of uh, uh, loans. There's also very, very high rates of corruption. Right? The, the average person who lives in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, in order to gain access to what we take for granted, you know, sort of the superstructure around us, what we call the common good, roads, parking lots, walking down sidewalks, and so on, um, the typical person in Nigeria needs $10 a day in bribes. All right? so that they can park somewhere, so they can walk somewhere, uh, so they can get into a building to find you know, help from a, a doctor, so they can get somebody to teach their child something. Often a bribe is necessary for a grade uh, uh, report to, to come out. Um, there's a history of state failure, too. In, in the poorest nations, um, they, they traditionally have been uh, dominated by uh, what we could call either um, uh, autocracies, or you could say kind of a, a more of a tribal or a, a, what we now call anocracy, and that is very, very weak central government, and, and um, uh, that, that has constrained uh, the ability of governments to handle really one of the biggest issues, and that is corruption. Just corruption, uh, you know, the, 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 the rate of corruption is so great in the Ukraine that yesterday when the IMF said, we'll, we'll bail you out, here's $15 billion dollars. They said it has a string attached, and that is you've got to fight corruption in your nation. We, we know that this is one of the, the things that halts free markets from operating well, so let's fight it. Right. And we, to... Yeah, give me one more minute. <laughs> <laughs> or two. <laughs> but but I, I, I want to encourage you as well you know, to, uh, to think, if, if we're going to try to fight poverty more, uh, in light of the call that the Pope is giving to us, you know, um, the, we can learn lots of great lessons from development economists. And um, I'll point out a third book uh, to offer to you guys that um, adds to those books that, that Professor Zorik mentioned. It's a book by um, Abhijit Benerjee and Esther Duflo. It's called Poor Economics. These guys studied um, the, the poorest of the poor all over planet Earth. And they've come up with what they say are basically uh, several discoveries. Right. The first one is no, no uh, <laughs> surprise. The poorest of the poor have property and lack property rights. Um, here's really uh, very important. They lack good information. And sometimes they actually believe things that are not true. So they, they use the wrong quantities of fertilizer. They, they actually buy um, drugs not good for them and ignore free immunizations. You know, they, and, and, they some, and here's a big one. Across uh, various countries, um, there's sort of a credibility crisis with regard to government messages that go out. Um, people don't believe governments. And so when you get in there to try to actually give good information, their first thing is to say, wait a second, you know, I don't really believe you. I don't think this is credible. That's a problem. They also, the poor, we've discovered they bear too much responsibility for making the right decisions. That is to say, they bear too much responsibility for finding drinking water, getting a, 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 a good roads in their village, um, getting sewer lines, 
um, uh, a balanced diet, and so on. Um, Michael, also, as a no, they're not. And, and <laughs> they, 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 also, they also need insurance. Their lives are dominated by much more level, greater levels of uncertainty, but they, the insurance markets fail to operate well for them. Basically, these development economists conclude something fascinating. Their conclusion is this. The, the market systems that we have, it's not that there's too much. It's that there's not enough. We've got to sort of figure out ways to get markets to work well in their conditions. And, and that's what's so great about the Holy Father, Blessed John the 23rd, telling us, you look at the conditions, look at the situation, then deploy the principles and act in light of your, your sort of circumstances that you have right at hand. And then I'll just leave it with one thing, just one last thing. Is that okay? <laughs> no, I better not. I'll wait until it we comes around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the dad, right? <laughs> <laughs> Would it help if I had a mic? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, okay. All right, well, um, I think at least in part, some of what uh, Dr. Welker was saying uh, is illustrating, I think, what I'd like to start with, which is, in terms of giving you, uh, talking to you about what would be most helpful for you in the, in the business uh, marketplace or wherever you might work in the economy, the polity, is to appropriate the grace of your baptism. Because we are um, realists within the Catholic Church. That's what we are. And I say realist as opposed to utopian. Uh, utopias, my definition of utopia is any vision in life that denies the reality of original sin. And what that means is, for me at least, is that as you go into the market, if we have corruption, it's because of corrupt people. And if we have uh, corrupt economics, it's not because of some system. The system is not corrupt, it's the people in the system. So if you want to become a part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem, there's got to be an alternative way out of that, and I would say Christ is the one to help bring that about. So let me just talk about that a little bit. We need to be realists as opposed to utopian. Uh, that's really what I'd like to talk about. So if you go back to the book of Genesis, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created the whole earth to meet the needs of all men and women on the face of the planet. And that was his purpose in creating this world that we live in was to take care of us, the vegetables, the, the foods, the plants. They serve the animals. They serve us. And there is, um, therefore, a purpose in creation, which is to serve the needs of all of God's creatures. Now, that means in the very beginning, the word my didn't exist. We were fundamentally in the beginning in agreement with the common, the, the, the common destination of all created goods to take care of all. So like Adam would not come upon Eve eating from a tree and say, hey, that's my tree. You go and get your tree, because the word my didn't exist. The whole of the world was created to feed the needs of all, and we agreed with that. We didn't need to have the division of proper property into private sectors. With the fall, however, my became a part of our vocabulary, and now private property became in keeping with the natural law of fallen nature. And so that's why the church does teach. Private property is in accord with the natural law. For the simple reason that where you don't have private property, and this is going back to Thomas, Bonaventure, all of them Middle Ages, where you, like in socialism, get rid of private property, you end up with all manner of discord and fighting over the property. Whereas with the division of property, we're content. We get some share of this world that belongs to us, and we're at peace with that. 
This is my home. This is my land. This is, I can enjoy it. And of course, um, you take care of it. Whereas public housing, it doesn't belong to anybody. It's not my house. It's the state's house. Uh, they're usually kind of trashed, right? You don't really take care of what doesn't belong to you. <laughs> and the fact that, okay, so you take that, and now you look at poverty, and people who are poor, that means that they don't have a lot of private property, um, and who aren't freely poor, generally are dissatisfied, they're miserable, they're not happy, because we are meant to have some share in this world's goods. So the poor sections of, of the city, the town, you want to stay away from there, it's dangerous. I mean, there's a lot of contention, uh, robberies, there's a lot of different sorts of underhanded deals going on. Stay out of that section of town at night. Don't go down 7th Street in Steubenville at 11 o'clock. It's dangerous, okay? It just goes to show that we, you know, uh, if you're, if you're poor and don't want to be poor, I mean, that, that, that discord results. Now see, I am voluntarily poor. <laughs> By the grace of God. Now what that means is my vow of poverty says I renounce private property, but I'm doing it freely. See. I freely renounce owning the car that I drive. Uh, I, when I leave here, I don't take the desk with me. I don't take my bed with me. I got a, I got a probably 30-year-old pillow when I came here. Pretty gross. <laughs> All right? Um, I renounce private property. Uh, I don't take the furniture with me. I don't back up, you know, like a moving van to get all my stuff out of the room because it belongs here. And I go to the next, room, next house where I'm assigned and there's a desk for me there, there's a bed for me there, you know? You see what I'm talking about? Well, see, private property is the result of the fall. What limits private property? Well, private property is a relative precept of the natural law, that means it's derivative of the original purpose of creation, which is to feed the needs of all. And that's in Catholic social thought called the universal destination of all created goods to meet the needs of all. That, that is an absolute precept of the creation, the natural law, that was not wiped out by the fall. And so, if I, in my private ownership of goods, end up depriving someone else who needs some use of those goods to stay alive, the universal destination of all created goods trumps your right to private property. You see what I'm talking about? And see, what, 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 what ends up happening sometimes within a free market system is the reality of greed, the autocentrism, the unfettered, as Pope Francis would talk about it, unfettered free market can lead to a few people having a lot and more people having not enough. And that's where Pope Francis is coming from because he's a realist. We are fallen human beings. We tend to like to bring a lot of the world's created goods to ourselves instead of share. This is what we call greed, and it's a possibility. And Pope Francis is trying to speak to that. Now see, Pope John Paul II in Centesimus Annus is speaking about something else, however, when he talks about the free market and its benefit. All he's saying there is the free market system is the best system we have for achieving the universal destination of all created goods to as many people as possible. That's why he likes it, is because the free market system is one of the most beneficial systems we have for fulfilling an absolute precept of the natural law. This is why he likes it. He's not an economist passing a judgment on, well, 
this economy is better than Marxist economics, although he would say that, of course. Um, but he's also saying free market is, is, is the better system simply because its capacity to fulfill the universal destination of all created goods, which is an absolute precept of the natural law. That is what's achieved by the free market system. More people come into created goods by way of the free market system than, let's say, Marxist ideologies would impose. And I mean, that's the problem with the Marxist socialist vision, if I may say so. One last thing here is they weren't realists, they were utopians. Because in their analysis of the status quo at the time, what they saw was, if we topple this system, there'll be a lot of wealth that'll be loosened up from these selfish capitalists. We'll redistribute it, no private property, and everyone will be happy. But I'm telling you, what happened? They were utopians. That is, they denied the reality of original sin. And the people that destroyed the status quo began to pull the released wealth to themselves, and now we have a new elite that comes up. And that, of course, would be the communist state, and we have the people within that that are favored by all this new wealth that is released by destroying the previous capitalist system. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the, the church doesn't, as uh, Dr. Cyrillus said, endorse any system. What it endorses is the grace of Christ to free us sufficiently from our own sort of grab to maybe divert the whole river of creation to ourselves to become free of that sufficiently that we find ways to serve, as Dr. Lowry was saying, to serve others rather than to just serve ourselves within the market. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.